0: To understand the horrific saga of Australia's worst serial killing case, one must first go back in time, back to a foreboding 1994 prequel, a grisly find at rural Lower Light, about 50 kilometers north of Adelaide, the South Australian capital. A farmer had stumbled upon skeletal remains in a barren field on August 16th, 1994. Social talk in the quiet city of churches Turned once again to speculation about what might follow. By 1994, South Australia already had a long, disturbing history of abductions and serial murders. Yet no one versed in the beautiful city's bizarre heritage could have predicted the sequel to that single body find a complex web of murder and fraud. Like the case's Vault of Horrors itself, the lower light corpse's significance would not be revealed until 1999. When a body is found in South Australia and the police announce foul play, a sickening sense of deja vu grips both the media and public imagination. A brief review of some notorious cases explains why. Established in 1837, Adelaide the city was well conceived. Originally planned by military engineer Colonel William Light, it was laid out with impressive foresight and intelligence. Light envisioned a series of city squares, connected by wide streets, laced with gardens, and surrounded by parklands. The site he chose for his orderly, open-plan city was ideal. Adelaide would grow between a mountain and the sea. And though built in the driest state in Earth's driest continent, fresh water would be an ample supply. The River Torrens winds from rocky gorges in the Mount Lofty Ranges through the coastal plains to the sea. Colonial planning also aligned with Light's vision. When most other Australian cities were primarily penal settlements, Adelaide was stocked exclusively with free settlers. But beneath this cultured exterior has always lurked a propensity for brutal crimes. Colonel Light's statue in North Adelaide looks down on the panorama of a magnificent city centre and on many terrible crime scenes. Controversial author Salman Rushdie visited Adelaide in the 1980s and later declared it a perfect setting for a Stephen King novel or horror film, adding that sleepy conservative towns are where those things happen. Australia Day, 1966, in the midst of post-war optimism and an economic boom, saw Adelaide shocked by a presumed triple abduction murder. The victims were children, Jane, Arna, and Grant Beaumont, aged nine, seven, and four respectively, vanished after leaving their home for nearby Glenelg Beach, never to be seen again. As if to signal trends to come, the case prefigured the horrors that were to befall Adelaide in the 1970s. For locals, a string of multiple crime cases almost eclipsed other seminal events of the decade, such as Vietnam, the peace movement, and even the Apollo moon landing. The chilling words, serial killings, came to apply to South Australia long before the expression entered popular speech around the world. The decade kicked off with a heart-rending tragedy, a domestic killing spree. In September of 1971, Clifford Cecil Bartholomew was charged with the shooting murder of 10 of his relatives at Hope Forest near Adelaide. Among the dead, Mrs. Heather Bartholomew, a baby and a group of siblings, aged from 4 to 19. Pleading guilty to the murder of his wife in November of that year, Clifford Bartholomew was sentenced to death but ultimately served only eight years' imprisonment. In August of 1973, Joanne Ratcliffe, 11, and her friend Christy Gordon, 4, attended an Australian Rules football match at Adelaide Oval with Joanne's parents. Presumed intercepted en route to the toilets by an unknown offender at the three-quarter time break, they were never heard from again. South Australia reeled, recalling the Beaumonts. Both the police and public speculated that the same predator might be responsible for both abductions. But despite exhaustive inquiries, each case remained unsolved. Out mushrooming on public holiday Anzac Day in 1978, a man discovered the body of a young woman in Scrubland near Truro, about 80 kilometers north of Adelaide. Though sparsely populated, Truro lies near the world-famous Barossa Valley Wine District. Related corpses were soon unearthed near Murray Bridge, a river town to the east of Adelaide, and in a northern suburbs rubbish dump. While the modus operandi was variant, one victim had been shot, another beaten and stabbed. All had disappeared between December 1976 and February 1977. It was also later established that each had been abducted from either Adelaide city center or northern suburbs. Police soon connected further disappearances of teenage girls, though no suspects were identified until 1979. By then, the case locals simply called Truro encompassed seven victims aged 15 to 26. James William Miller, one of two men ultimately found responsible for the murders, had made statements incriminating himself to his former lover, Christopher Robin Worrell. Worrell, a handsome young bisexual with a prison history, had been killed in a traffic accident two days after the disappearance of the last victim in February, 1977. Miller led police to where he and Worrell had buried or hidden their other victims, as far apart as Port Gawler on the South Australian coast, Gilman on the outskirts of the city, and further sites at the killer's main graveyard near Truro. In March 1980, Miller was found guilty of the murders of six of the seven victims and sentenced to life imprisonment. Worrell, some suggested, had already been dealt with by a higher court. But even before Miller's conviction, another serial case was alarming Adelaide from 1979 onwards. The mutilated body of Alan Barnes, 17, appeared on the banks of a reservoir north of Adelaide a week after his disappearance. Blood loss from massive anal injuries was cited as the cause of death. Two months later, Neil Muir, 25, was found beside the saltwater Port River, Port Adelaide, his body diced and sealed in plastic garbage bags. In 1981, 14 year old Peter Stognev disappeared while playing truant. In February of the following year, Mark Langley, 18, disappeared from near the River Torrens. His mutilated corpse, bearing a surgical style abdominal incision, was located nine days thereafter in the hills. Portions of his lower bowel had been removed. Four months later, Peter Stogneff's body was found at Port Galler, the isolated burial spot also used by the Truro murderers. His skeletal remains had been sawn apart. One year later, Richard Kelvin, 15, son of a popular newsreader and television celebrity, was abducted only meters from his home in upmarket North Adelaide. His body was eventually dumped in the Adelaide Hills, only a few kilometers from a hobby farm. Pathologists examining this victim noted some alarming familiarities. Anal wounds and death by blood loss. But forensic evidence also suggested something new and its announcement stunned locals. Police believed that Richard Kelvin had suffered five weeks of drugged imprisonment prior to death. The media were soon reporting on the rumored existence of a well-organized homosexual serial killer gang dubbed The Family. Popular gossip held that The Family preyed on young men in order to make snuff movies featuring on-camera sexual murders. The hearts of Adelaide people went out to young Richard Kelvin's high-profile and publicly courageous parents. For many Adelaideans, the taking of his son felt like an attack on the family of an old friend. More sensational speculation followed. It was widely rumored that a huge network of alleged offenders was known to police, some of them high in Adelaide society. Yet only one man was eventually brought to justice. Adelaide accountant Bevan Spencer von Einem was linked to the Kelvin murder through trace evidence, matching drugs and hairs. Convicted on the one victim, von Einem, who was reported to be a former medical student, was sentenced to life imprisonment. In 1988, Bevan Spencer Von Einem was also charged with the murders of Alan Barnes and Mark Langley. A mystery witness, identified only as Mr. B, gave astonishing evidence at the committal hearing. Among other claims, Mr. B alleged that Von Einem was involved in each of the five killings the press had now dubbed the family murders. While that seemed a logical claim to many, Mr. B did not stop there. He alleged that von Einem had also implicated himself in both the Beaumont and Ratcliffe-Gordon cases. Adelaide was shaken by the idea of a prolific killer operating undetected since 1966. Media reports were quick to point out that von Einem was old enough to have participated. But as Bee's testimony was uncorroborated by other evidence and complex legal issues arose involving the admissibility of similar fact evidence, prosecutors were unable to proceed. Von Einem remains imprisoned for the Richard Kelvin murder and denies involvement in the other abductions. Against this formidable background, police, journalists, and citizens of South Australia have learned not to make any assumptions. When just one body is pulled from the ground or found beside a river, it might simply be the beginning. Such was the case on August 16, 1994, with the unknown corpse at lower light. But Australia would have to wait until May 20, 1999 to see more than the tip of the proverbial iceberg. It would surface in a northern haven called Snowtown. Rural Snowtown, about 150 kilometers north of Adelaide, is home to between 500 and 600 people. Not far from the little wheat belt community, one low range of hills breaks up kilometers of flat farmland stretching to each horizon. Like most South Australian bush towns, Snowtown has weathered the backwash of the state's economic misfortunes. Housing is cheap, but jobs and services are on the decline in the country. While ambitious youngsters head into the city in search of tertiary education and work, many of the urban poor and unemployed are attracted to rural centres, the only places they could ever afford a home. The sudden influx of strangers frequently raises the level of angst, and some claim crime in beleaguered close-knit bush towns it's an economically driven pattern now reflected in every australian state in the early 80s snowtown gave one the impression of turning back the clock to that nostalgic perhaps romanticized old world of hard-working peaceful country folk snowtown's aura held no trace of the tension and menace usually associated with cities but on thursday may 20th 1999 that traditional restful persona Was shattered. In the final stages of a complex year long missing person investigation, police entered the former Snowtown branch of the State Bank of South Australia. Like many rural banks, the branch was no longer in service. The red brick building in the town's main street proved to be a chamber of horrors. Six black plastic barrels, or vats, were located behind the old bank vault's 10 centimeter thick metal door. They contained acid and human body parts from eight different victims, including 15 human feet. Police information suggested the victims' remains had been in storage there for at least three months. Outside the vault itself, the former main banking area contained electrical and computer equipment. Disbelief and revulsion gripped the small town as word quickly spread. An early topic of conversation was the unique stomach-turning stench released from the vault upon its opening. As a police officer, I've smelt death before, commented Snowtown policeman Ian Young. You don't have to get close to this to know what this was. Barry Drew was working next door to the old bank when police began removing evidence. He was later to tell that they counted the toes and then divided. Police also removed evidence from a rented house less than a kilometer from the bank. Located between the United and Catholic churches, it was the home of a suspect in the matter. Neighbours described the occupants of the house as reclusive strangers who had never bonded with the Snowtown community, and so had been left separate. Over 100 kilometres away, sprawling between the Adelaide foothills and the sea, the northern suburbs were about to enter the case. The collective northern suburbs region has always been blue-collar to middle-income. In recent decades, much of Adelaide's suburbia has suffered high unemployment levels. Unpretentious and multicultural, the northern zone straddles mostly flat, featureless coastal plains until it meets low, rolling hills to the east. The day after the Snowtown find, police swooped early on three northern suburb addresses. Three men were each charged with one count of murder of a person unknown between August 1, 1993, and May 20, 1999 John Justin Bunting, 32, of Craigmore, Robert Joe Wagner, 27, of Elizabeth Grove described by some neighbors as brooding and illiterate, and Mark Ray Hayden, 40, of Smithfield Plains, were arrested with an expectation that more charges would later be laid. All were remanded in custody to reappear on July 2, 1999. By Sunday, June 23, police were searching for more bodies. They arrived at a former residence of Buntings, a double-fronted, semi-detached house on Waterloo Corner Road, Salisbury North, which has since been demolished. A new high-tech ally accompanied their search for evidence. Instead of the traditional cadaver dogs and methane probes, investigators employed ground-penetrating radar, a spin-off of technology developed to find plastic landmines in the 1982 Falklands War. The compact invention had already proved itself in finding bodies in Britain's infamous 1994 House of Horrors case involving serial killer Fred West. Police broke up a concrete slab just outside the public housing property's back door. Apparently, the suspected gravesite had also once been covered by a rainwater tank. Once the earth was exposed, a bright yellow box resembling an oversized lawnmower was wheeled across the spot. Within minutes, the device's readout supplied the anticipated data. An area of about 2 meters square had been disturbed, then refilled. At 3 p.m., after careful digging, Forensic police located a human body at a depth of about two meters, secured in two separate plastic bags. It was clear that investigators had arrived armed with detailed information. In fact, the arrests and searches were the culmination of long months of behind-the-scenes preparation. Unknown to the Snowtown case's alleged offenders, Acting Police Commissioner Neil McKenzie had authorized the formation of a task force, named Chart, it was under the command of veteran detective Chief Superintendent Paul Schram. The chart's original brief was to investigate the connection between three missing people. By the time it was fully assembled, the chart had included 33 police from Major Crime, Crime Scene Examination, Forensic Evidence Gatherers, and Missing Persons Squad. Supporting them were administrators to help handle the information and manpower workloads, as well as anthropologists and pathologists. Never before in the history of South Australia has the challenge been so great, declared Mackenzie, to investigate a series of crimes as a single event. Who were the three subjects of the initial inquiry? Barry Wayne Lane, a 40-year-old transvestite and convicted pedophile who vanished in October 1997. His friend Clinton Douglas Trazese, who was last seen in 1993 at the age of 22, and mother of eight, Elizabeth Hayden, declared missing in 1999, age 37, and married to one of the accused. Linking these identities and their last known movements and associates had ultimately led chart investigators north to the bank vault. One specific development was the movement to Snowtown over the preceding months of certain motor vehicles. Allegedly, these vehicles of interest belonged to key associates of the prime suspects. Suspects who obviously had no inkling that a net was closing around them. A shocked public absorbed the details of the Vault of Horrors in Snowtown, then the bagged body in the northern suburbs of Adelaide. It was announced that chart forensic detectives suspected the latter might have been three to four years in the ground. But there's little time for contemplating the significance of that. Wednesday, the 26th, brought another twist to the case. A second, older body was located, buried virtually under the first. Initial sweeps with ground-penetrating radar had suggested that the soul beneath the first body had not been disturbed. However, subsequent scans disclosed recompaction over an earlier burial site. Digging again, the police discovered skeletal remains about three meters down, this time not enclosed in plastic. The body count had climbed to ten. Public anxiety grew, as did media speculation about the identities of the victims. Christine Speck, sister of missing Elizabeth Hayden, spoke to journalists of her darkest fears. Ms. Speck said that Elizabeth would not have disappeared of her own free will because of her commitment to her sons. Elizabeth Hayden's brother, Garyon Sinclair, and his wife, Ray, told reporters that they had also entertained grim suspicions following Elizabeth's vanishing. State Housing Minister Dean Brown said he expected the public housing property to be demolished. Residents on either side of the death house were given the option of moving out. One quickly accepted. On May 27th, police announced that the first of the ten bodies recovered so far, that of a male, had been identified by fingerprints. The victim's name was withheld pending notification of all his relatives. With three people now charged and a plethora of interviews with neighbors, relatives, and friends on the accused underway, a picture began to emerge. It presented a surprising alleged motive for the killings—social security pensions. Federal welfare agency Centerlink sifted through their disability support pension files, seeking connections to a list of missing persons provided by police. Some of those missing had not been formally reported to authorities. Others apparently had, while it was believed that in both cases, routine welfare payments were still outgoing. And someone was allegedly receiving them. Certain media reports suggested secondary motives of a psychosexual nature. Others implied a possible link to neo-Nazism by one alleged offender. Yet consistently, police press releases remain centered on a financial motive. Some investigators suspected victims' welfare payments had been accessed for years after they'd gone missing. Serial killing, if you will, for serial benefits. We do not believe these are random killings, said Detective Superintendent Schramm. Also concerned to allay public fears, Acting Commissioner McKenzie suggested that the killings could be characterized as a group that preyed on itself. In the United States, a comment was invited from a forensic psychiatrist with the FBI and New York State Police Forensic Sciences Unit, Dr. Park Dietz. Dr. Dietz compared the body disposal techniques of Snowtown to those of prolific serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer, who alone murdered 17 young boys and men. But on learning that three alleged offenders were involved in the Snowtown case, Dr. Dietz added a comment regarding motive. His expert view was that in cases involving three or more killers, the motive usually proved financial as opposed to sexual. This certainly supported Chart Police's impressions. However, a further twist awaited. The three alleged offenders were soon to have company. On June 2nd, Task Force Chart detectives made another arrest in the northern suburbs. James Spiridon Vlasikis, 19, became the fourth to be charged. His alleged read was that on May 4th, he had committed murder at Snowtown. Initially, however, details of this allegation were kept from the public. Prosecutors obtained a suppression order on most of Vlasicus's allegation, including the name of the alleged victim. After an application by the media to lift the order, Adelaide Magistrate David Swain held a bedside hearing on July 3rd in Glenside Psychiatric Hospital, where Vlasicus had been placed after his arrest. Magistrate Swain imposed an interim suppression order but agreed to hear legal arguments on the issue the following day. Following that debate, part of the order was relaxed, enabling the publication of Vlasicus's name and the date and place of the alleged offence. Reportedly, Vlasicus attempted suicide twice in his first week in custody. He was secured in James Nash House, the South Australian Department of Corrections' Maximum Security Psychiatric Clinic. Fresh information, possibly supplied by Vlasicus, led investigators to conduct thorough searches of further properties. A house was visited at Burdekin Avenue in the river town of Murray Bridge, 70 kilometers to the southeast of Adelaide. It apparently yielded nothing helpful. Remaining under tight scrutiny in James Nash House, Vlasicus was remanded to join the other accused in court for July 2nd. By June 3rd, Task Force Chart Police had identified six of the eight bank vault bodies by age and gender. Fingerprint and dental records were being accessed to tie the victims to collated police information. No names of the deceased had been released to the public, and Chart's information suggested they would find at least one more body. Old files on unidentified human remains were pulled and considered, including those found at Lower Light back in 1994. Some detectives suspected that they were dealing with murders committed as early as 1992. The suggestion was also raised that a man missing from neighbouring Australian state Victoria, one Gavin Porter, might be among the dead. Chart detectives turned to recent science to confirm their leads and suspicions. The comparatively new discipline of DNA profiling offered the best hope for positively identifying the badly decomposed bodies. Fortunately, task force charts information suggested specific missing persons whose identities, through blood relations, could be verified. DNA matching is an expensive process; each test costing just under 300 Australian dollars. It relies on police being able to trace the relatives of the suspected deceased, who can then provide samples for microscopic comparison. DNA identification of an offspring means that a subject is 20 million times more likely to come from the sampled parents than from anyone else. Those are very persuasive odds, and the testing procedure itself is relatively fast. What can hamper the matching process is the time and difficulty involved in locating and sampling living relatives. Parents, for example, who may not have shared their lives, or geography, for many years. But the process's strength lies in the resilience of human DNA. Whether a body has been buried, burnt, or, in the case of the snowtown vault, corpses immersed in acid, that which survives is often substantial. Bone marrow, blood, and even hair follicles can continue, despite being pickled in corrosive fluid, to hold enclosed DNA in the nuclei of their cells. Regardless of the overall state of the body or body parts, the human blueprint can still be extracted, mapped, and compared. In the first week of June, with DNA cross-matching underway, police lined up two more properties for comprehensive searching. Again, one laid in the Riverland near the Murray River, another in the state's mid-north in the wheat belt that includes Snowtown. While efforts to match the victims' identities continued in the laboratory, others worked on their behalf in a different way. The Christians of Snowtown held a poignant combined churches service on June 7th in the local hall. Less than 60 people attended, representing United, Lutheran, and Anglican churches. They lit eight candles, one for each of the vault's victims. As rain pattered on the roof, the group prayed for both the dead and those accused of killing them. By the following day, seven of the eight bank vault victims had been identified. The two bodies exhumed from the Salisbury North property had yet to be DNA-matched. Yet a picture of past events that had shaped the disturbing case were emerging, one that police felt confident enough to share in snatches with the waiting media and public. Unfamiliar cars frequenting a community the size of Snowtown rarely go unnoticed. This factor helped chart investigators connect the sleepy town with the northern Adelaide suburbs missing persons cases. But the vehicles of interest also raised other questions. Was there a human network going beyond the four accused involved in the killings? If so, how large was it? The DNA tests concluded. Police released the names of three of the identified victims. Charred intelligence collators and detectives reviewed the emerging correlations. They revealed a tangled snare of past relationships between the accused and the dead, confirming the early assertion of acting police commissioner Neil McKenzie. This was a group that preyed on itself. Cautiously, a little at a time, police sources confirmed as much as they felt was prudent, wary of prejudicing the ongoing investigation. Not all victims had been publicly named, though all had been successfully identified. DNA matching apparently confirmed a police list of reported and unreported missing persons on pensions or benefits. All were associated with the known accused. Police also confirmed that missing Victorian man Gavin Porter, aged between 20 and 30 at the time he disappeared, was among the slain. Another identified and named victim was missing person Barry Lane. Forty at the time of his disappearance in 1997, Lane was a convicted sex offender and a transvestite who used the name Vanessa. But it was revealed he had also lived, for some eight years, with one of the accused. Robert Wagner, 27. Their shared residence at 1 Bingham Road, Salisbury North, was a block away from the death house, occupied by the accused man, John Bunting, 32. Barry Lane, in turn, had been involved in a sexual relationship with another key missing person who had triggered the whole chart investigation, Clinton Douglas Trezies, 22 at the time of his vanishing. Returning to John Bunting, a former resident of 203 Waterloo Corner Road, the death house, he was engaged to Gail Sinclair, sister of a key missing person, and now identified and named victim, Elizabeth Hayden, niece Sinclair. Elizabeth Hayden was, of course in life, the accused man Mark Hayden's wife. These revelations bring us full circle, back to that grisly 1994 prequel to the Snowtown murder story with which we began the single body at lower light. By June 8, 1999, chart detectives had obtained an old x-ray image of Clinton Treese's from a previous employer. As it was scrutinized by pathologists and anthropologists assisting the task force, a five-year-old mystery was finally laid to rest, and the key historical connection made. The announcement by police in June of 99 took me back to 94, when yet again many South Australians had wondered what terrible multiple crimes they might soon be reading about. Those skeletal remains found at lower light on August 16, 1994, were Trezizis. Ironically, he was the first to be found, among the last to be identified. In a further irony, the ID match was made by an outdated form of medical technology, an X-ray, not complex DNA testing. Clinton Douglas Trezis had last been sighted in 1993, but had not been reported missing until 1995. By then, his unidentified skeleton had already been found. While there is little question that Trezis met with foul play and figured prominently in charts behind-the-scenes inquiries, a doubt still hangs over his identity as a victim of this alleged group. His killer may still be at large. Detective Superintendent Schramm included the lower light body's identification. Calling it a significant breakthrough, Schram defined the elusive ID as a matter we have been trying to achieve for the past four years. He added, of the 11 people on our list, balancing against eight vault bodies, two backyard burials, and one from lower light in 94, we now think we can account for all of those people. We are not at the moment looking for any more bodies. The South Australian Police Department's complicated, delicate search for further offenders and accomplices goes on, but for the time being at least, Snowtown's deadly math appears to add up. Chart police remained cautious in releasing information. One suppression order hanging over the case still prevents public identification of one victim. However, mostly through the recollections of neighbours and relatives, sketches of a few key personalities have already developed. Though little has so far come to light about John Bunting, backstories have emerged for alleged co-offenders Mark Ray Hayden and Robert Wagner, along with some insights into alleged victims Elizabeth Hayden and Barry Lane. Mark Hayden had lived with his father in Elizabeth East, a northern suburb's address only a few kilometers away from the death house at Waterloo Corner Road, Salisbury. The Haydens had lost Mark's only brother in a car accident years earlier. Neighbors remember Hayden as a quiet person who used the name Mark Lawrence and often spent time working on his car. While apparently unemployed, Hayden enjoyed frequent and numerous visitors, many of them rough and rugged. Nonetheless, neighbors said, the Haydens' address was never noisy or disruptive. Around 1995, alleged victim Elizabeth Sinclair moved in with the Haydens, becoming Mrs. Elizabeth Hayden some two years later. A neighbor's impression of her was, A bit slow, but happy-go-lucky. Mr. Hayden Sr. left the Elizabeth East address in 1998. His son told neighbors that he'd gone into a nursing home. Since learning of the Snowtown case and its alleged financial motivation, the same neighbors have asked police to verify the aged Mr. Hayden's whereabouts. In September 1998, Mark Hayden sold the rundown house to a developer and moved to Smithfield Plains, a neighboring northern suburb. It was from that address that Mrs. Elizabeth Hayden disappeared. On Sunday evening, November 22, 1998, Mark Hayden arrived at the home of Elizabeth's brother, Garion Sinclair. Garion and his wife, Ray, who lived about five kilometers north of Hayden's home in Smithfield Plains, had been hosting Elizabeth's sons, aged 11 and 12 respectively, for the weekend. The Sinclairs had anticipated both the Haydens collecting their children, but Mark came alone. Before removing the boys, Hayden allegedly told Gary and Sinclair that following an argument on the weekend, Elizabeth had left him. The following day, he claimed that his wife had run off with one of her boyfriends to places unknown after taking money from her husband and father-in-law's joint bank account. In the third retelling to Gary, a few days later, Hayden allegedly stated that after visiting his father in the nursing home, he'd returned to his house to find that Elizabeth had disappeared. The only consistency throughout those alleged accounts was Hayden's disinterest in reporting his wife's supposed flight, the act of theft, or disappearance to the police. Garion and Ray Sinclair weighted the three contradictory stories against what they knew of Elizabeth and grew suspicious. On November 25, 1998, Garion Sinclair filed a missing person report with Adelaide Police, adding pieces to a jigsaw puzzle he knew nothing about. In addition to Mark Hayden’s suspect accounts of her departure, Elizabeth’s history and circumstances in 1998 also made Garing’s reaction understandable. Elizabeth Hayden was born as Verna and Clair, the youngest child of six. Family members have related that she had a difficult life. A series of unhappy relationships, most of them short, left Elizabeth with six daughters and two sons from a number of different fathers. But by 1998, it appeared that Elizabeth's life had turned a corner. She'd shown renewed determination to care for her sons, and after meeting Mark Hayden through a friend in her ceramics group in 1994, Elizabeth had embarked on the longest relationship she'd had. Tragically, her delayed season in the sun was not to last. Alleged killer Robert Wagner and alleged victim Barry Lane had lived together at Bingham Road, Salisbury North, a block away from the death house at Waterloo Corner Road. Recently reported neighborhood anecdotes offer some insights into their lifestyle. Dyeing his hair blonde and renaming himself Vanessa, Barry Lane often wore pink shorts in summer. Because of this flamboyant dress sense and a reputation for pedophilia convictions, Lane was occasionally persecuted by local children. Though their abuse was mainly verbal, Lane and Wagner's house was sometimes splattered with eggs. Perhaps in reaction, the duo built a two-meter-high iron fence around their semi-detached home and kept four Doberman pincer dogs. Neighbors described Lane as outgoing, but noted that he was obviously suffering from serious back pain. Both men received disability benefits from Australian Social Security, now called Centrelink. In a sensational report carried by the Sydney Morning Herald, Barry Lane's mother, Sylvia, spoke about her son's involvement in the chain of murder and money. Mrs. Lane described Barry living in fear since helping to conceal a murder eight or nine years ago. She also spoke of him being threatened by the others involved. Wagner, meanwhile, was described by his former neighbors as brooding, somewhat dependent on Lane, and unable to read or write. Both men, however, were quite well regarded by some in their street, who expressed disbelief at Wagner's murder charge. One antisocial tendency attributed to Robert Wagner by acquaintances or neighbors briefly attracted international media attention. Allegedly, Wagner was a white supremacist who told neighbors that he and his friends shared hatred of gays and Asians and that he had joined the group National Action. A brief report in the UK paper, The Weekly Telegraph, described Wagner's computer screensaver as reading, Adolf Hitler is alive. But so far, chart police have consistently signaled disinterest in this possible motivation for the alleged murders. And in contrast to this neo-Nazi image, one elderly neighbor recalled Wagner and Lane going out and buying food for his pets. Another remembered the pair playing church music at home. Significantly, several neighborhood anecdotes simply mention a regular visitor to Lane and Wagner's place, co-accused John Justin Bunting. Former local student James Kuzner, 17, is the cousin of Clinton Trezies. I was 12 when Cliff, Clinton, disappeared. We thought he had just run away, he told reporters. Kuzner also confirmed that it was a common local knowledge that Lane, a.k.a. Vanessa, was a pedophile. Chart police have established that for a time, Barry Lane was in a relationship with missing person, Clinton Trezies. In July 2002, One of the four men charged with the Snowtown murders, 22-year-old James Vlasikis, pleaded guilty to four counts of murder in the Adelaide Supreme Court. In handing down a life sentence with a 26-year-old non-parole period, the judge said that if Vlasikis had not cooperated with police and authorities, then he would have received a non-parole period of 42 years. The trial of Bunting and Wagner lasted almost 12 months, the longest in the history of South Australia. In December 2003, Bunting was convicted of committing 11 murders and Wagner of 10 murders, of which he had confessed to only three. Blasikis pleaded guilty to four of the murders. In 2004, Hayden was convicted on five counts of assisting with the murders, of which he admitted to two. The jury did not come to a decision on two murder charges against Hayden and another charge of assisting murder, at which the senior prosecutor, Wendy Abraham, indicated that she would seek a retrial on those charges. The final count against Bunting and Wagner, that of murdering Suzanne Allen, was dropped on the 7th of May 2007 when a jury had been unable to reach a verdict. Justice Brian Ross Martin determined that Bunting was the ringleader and sentenced him to 11 consecutive terms of life imprisonment without the possibility of release on parole. Wagner was sentenced to 10 consecutive terms under the same conditions, and at his sentencing, he stated from the dock, Pedophiles were doing terrible things to children. The authorities didn't do anything about it. I decided to take action. I took that action. Thank you. Vlasikis was sentenced to four consecutive life sentences with a non-parole period of 26 years, and Hayden was sentenced to 25 years with a non-parole period of 18 years. More than 250 suppression orders prevented publication of the details of this case. In early 2011, a judge lifted the remaining orders in response to a request by the producers of the film Snowtown, a dramatization depicting the murders and the events leading up to them. The Telegraph in the UK reported several were found with gags stuffed in their mouths, others had ropes around their necks, feet and limbs had been chopped off, and there were burns on some of the bodies. The killings were allegedly carried out as part of a macabre social security fraud. Wendy Abraham QC, opening the prosecution case, said the four had collected the welfare benefits and disability allowances of their dead victims. They even impersonated some of those they'd killed to conduct banking transactions or to deal with the social security office. Before being murdered, some of the victims were made to repeat scripted phrases, which were taped and left on the answering machines of their relatives and friends to divert suspicion from their disappearance. Also located in the bank and vault were handcuffs, a set of knives, ropes and tape, a number of rubber gloves, and a machine which was capable of giving an electric shock. Miss Abraham said, A number had been dismembered, with legs and feet removed from their bodies, or they had been cut. One had his hands handcuffed behind his back and his legs tied together. More than one of the bodies had marks consistent with burn marks. If you say you're from Snowtown, people are like, ooh, the murders. So some locals don't even say they're from Snowtown. They'll say the Mid-North. After the murders, it did not take long for some to see a silver lining. Souvenirs went on sale and attempts were made to cash in on the crimes documentaries, and a film were made. In Snowtown, there has been constant talk of turning the old bank vault into a tourism site, potentially a museum. Each time the story of these crimes is revisited, it re-triggers the emotional and psychological turmoil that these families have gone through. At the time, the local press reported a suggestion that the town's name be changed to avoid the stigma now associated with the name, although this suggestion was never acted upon. One suggested new name in press reports was Rosetown.